Well, Humpty Dumpty wasn't an egg. He was a cannon. I know some of you are hearing this for the first time, and you're either disbelieving me, everyone knows Humpty Dumpty was an egg, or you're thinking, well, my whole childhood was a lie. <laughs> Earlier this week, uh, an author tweeted a question about this nursery rhyme asking whose idea was it that Humpty Dumpty was an egg? And social media exploded with responses about the lyric. And it led some to see or remind us that the first person to say that this nursery rhyme referred to an egg was actually the author Lewis Carroll in his sequel to Alice in Wonderland. Maybe you know that book, Through the Looking Glass. He is the one who first said that Humpty Dumpty was an egg. Now, I'm just going to tell you, Alice in Wonderland is weird. Through the Looking Glass is weird. So weird that Charles Dodgson, i.e. Lewis Carroll, was said to be on drugs when he was writing the books, though there's no evidence that he was ever on drugs, even though that's the popular view. But he's the guy who came up with Humpty Dumpty being an egg. But in reality, it, it probably is likely that the nursery rhyme is either about a canon or maybe even an English king. During the English Civil War, there was a very large canon that was destroyed. That may be the inspiration of Humpty Dumpty, or maybe even it's a reference to the fall of Richard III. I know all of you know your English kings and their history, so you're probably going, oh yeah, yeah, that's probably it. Either way, I think it makes a lot more sense about the line of all the king's horses and all the king's men. I mean, why in the world would they care about putting an egg back together? But do you know, it, it, even though it, Humpty Dumpty is probably like an egg, they couldn't put him back, or probably not like an egg, they couldn't put him back together again. It's, you know, like the proverbial toothpaste. Once it's out of the tube, you just can't get it back in. But there's someone who can. And, and I think the story of the gospel is a perfect story of God's restoring man to a right position before him. We call that reconciliation. God restoring man to himself. This is what Jesus came to do. He said, I've come to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus is actually the one who puts all the Humpty Dumpties back together again. He's the one who puts us back together again. And that's what our story is about. Jesus fixing the seemingly unfixable. Would you consider with me first that humanity is broken? Now, if you've been paying attention in our series here in Mark's Gospel, you will already recognize that first point because it comes up over and over again. Humanity is broken. It is spiritually broken. In verse 1, we, Jesus arrives at the other side of the lake into the country of the Gadarenes. Here in this Gentile region, likely, he meets a man who is demon-possessed. And I think this represents for us a truth about all human beings. Man's primary problem is his sin. Everywhere God goes, 
every man that he meets highlights this problem. We covered this concept a few months ago, as I said, and we probably will again. Jesus is constantly meeting people through the Gospel of Mark who have a sin problem, and because of their sin problem, they are broken. Can we just all nail it down right now? Man's problem is not a lack of education. His problem is not primarily economic. It's not about race. It's not about a system. It's not because of corporations. It's not because of governments. Man's problem primarily is his sin. You just have to be sold on that. The nice lady at the grocery store that you meet, if she's not a believer, her life is broken because of sin. You may not know that for sure, but that's absolutely the case. A number of years ago, I think I've told you this story in other contexts. I was with a group of pastors in Florida, and we were at a steak and shake. I kind of like steak and shake. In fact, I like it so much, I, used to, I once invested in steak and shake. I just really like Anyway, this is when my pancreas worked, but... Went into the steak and shake with a group of pastors. I was seated on the very end. They were with their wives. Becky wasn't with me. We had little ones at the time, so she was here at home. And I'm sitting there, and our waitress walked up, and she looked like she had a problem. And so, I mean, you could just see it in her face. So I said to her, ma'am, are you okay? And, and as soon as I said that to her, she burst into tears. I mean, it was like, uh, Vesuvius exploding, you know, this eruption of emotions out of her, at which all the people at the table who weren't paying attention thought to themselves, here's what they thought, what did you say to her? I didn't say anything to her. I just asked, are you okay? And she obviously wasn't okay. And then all the other waitresses in Mistake and Shake were convinced that I had said something horrible to her because that's probably is their pretty common experience. So they all rushed over to begin to comfort her. And what I found out later as she came back over and personally apologized of sorts to me for her emotional outburst was that she was having serious problems in her life. And it let some of us actually witness to her and talk to her about the Lord and promise to pray for her that, that the Lord would open and reveal himself to her. But, but do you know what it reminds me of? Her life broken because of sin. It's just everywhere you go. The problem is sin. It's everyone's problem. And this is why it appears in all of these various areas. And, and it's interesting because I think the problem of sin becomes complicated by spiritual warfare between God and Satan that's also going on. You kind of see that in this passage. Just like everywhere God goes and he meets man, highlights man's sin problem, everywhere God and man meet highlights this problem too, that there is a war going on and man is just kind of the casualties of that war. Satan is out to destroy mankind and we've talked about on numerous occasions, how he tried to destroy Job. How he took away from Job his, his money. He took away from Job his family, his, his fame or his, his a good name. He, he hurt Job's marriage. He tried to do everything he could to destroy Job and even took away his health. Everywhere we go, we see this truth 
that man and or God and, and, and uh, Satan rather are in a war and man is kind of the casualty of that war. And here in our text, we find this man and what's his problem? He is possessed by an unclean spirit. We would call that a demon. And I'm not going to get deep into demonology. I, it's a little scary for you. Can I just comfort you by this one thought? Is that if you are a believer and the Holy Spirit is indwelling you, a demon can never indwell you also. But you can become demonized. And what I mean by that is this. There are Christians who, because of their sinfulness, because they get involved in some serious sins, actually are affected personally by demons. That can happen. It's kind of an outside-in sort of thing. So we want nothing to do with them. We want to stay as far away from them as we can. The Bible says, resist the devil so that he will flee from you. But this man was possessed by a demon. And this brokenness, his personal brokenness, had implications for his life. Notice what it says. This is what this man experienced because of the indwelling demons. Verse 3. He lived in the cemetery among the tombs. No man could bind him. And always, verse 5, day and night, he was crying and cutting himself with stones. Do you see how this man had been reduced to something more like an animal and less than a human being? Do you see what's happening here? First of all, his sin led him to a homeless situation. Now, I want you to be careful not to think that this is always the case. People are not always homeless because of sin. But in this case, he had no home he made whatever home he had among the tombs. That is, his sin forced him out of society to become an outcast. Do you know what our society is actually doing, ladies and gentlemen, right now? They are trying to take people who, because of sin, should be outcast from society and trying to make society change so much that it's inclusive of them. Whatever this society was of Gentile people at this part of the lake, they realized this person doesn't belong in society. He should not be here. And he was actually pushed out of society. The answer isn't to change society. We'll notice the answer in just a moment. I say that this man had his dwelling among the tombs, and it may lead you to think that this is what sin does to people. But can I just stop for a moment, and can we just realize that sometimes sinners live in mansions? Mm -hmm. Sinners just as bad as this man live in mansions. They, their sin keeps them centered in society. They seem to be okay when they're just as at risk as he was. Not only did his sin lead to a homeless situation, it led to his incarceration. They tried to jail him. Do you see that? It says here, they, they tried to bind him with chains and fetters. They actually tried to arrest him. They tried to incarcerate him. And, and they weren't able to do it. His, his uh, demon possession apparently led him to have some kind of superhuman strength. And then, of course, his sin led to his mental illness. It says he could not be tamed. He, he couldn't function as a member of society. He was wandering about the area, crying, uh, yelling out. And it says he was even cutting himself with stones. This is evident of self-harm. Now I want you to stop for a moment and I want you to understand something. This 
what's going on in his life right here. His sin, which, which is involving demon possession, but his sin it, with the demon has led this man out of society into a homeless situation, into a place where the people of the society would like to incarcerate him, and it has led to him having what we would describe as mental illness. Do you realize how much of American culture can be described that way? It's really quite interesting. About two, I'm sorry, 0.2% of America's population is homeless. That 0.2%, that's a small number, right? That's almost half a million people. What's also interesting is 70% of those people are under the age of 50. Actually, most of them are young adults and young children. That's astonishing. This doesn't include all of the people who've come here illegally, unlawful immigration. They've come here trying to find a better life from whatever country they were in. For those people, many of them are homeless too, and they're not among the counted. Hundreds of thousands of people in our country have no place to sleep at night. Around 1% of our American population is incarcerated. Do you know we have over 330 million people living in America? One out of 100 of them are in jail. That's a really big number. It's more than half of the nearest nation to us percentage-wise. We incarcerate way more people than anywhere else. And then you get to mental illness or what people call mental illness. Around 20% of Americans have been diagnosed with some form of mental illness. And then can we add addictions to this? How about 10% of Americans? 30 million Americans are addicted to alcohol. 8% addicted to nicotine, 5% to marijuana, 1% to opioids. 150 people die every day in our country because of overdosing on fentanyl. Can we just stop for a second and say this is what sin has done to our country? This is what sin does. It breaks a society. For as liberated as we are and as enlightened as we are, as we claim to be, this is what sin has done to our country. Humanity is broken. But God knows that. He knows our problem. And in his love and his mercy and his grace. That's the way Paul describes it in Ephesians 2. His love and his mercy and his grace. He offers a solution to mankind. And this is point number two. Would you notice the solution here? God graciously offers a solution to this brokenness. He sent Jesus to heal the broken. It says in verse 6, when Jesus was still far away, this man saw Jesus and ran up and bowed before him. Now skip to verse 8. Jesus said to him, this is the first thing Jesus says to him, come out of the man, unclean spirit. Jesus looks at him, recognizes what his problem is, and commands the demon to be out of him. Now, this reminds us that Jesus came to earth on a mission against sin. And this is no chance meeting. I mean, all through the gospel, you have these chance meetings of Jesus, right? 
I mean, the woman at the well just happened to be there. Or maybe the rich young ruler who just happened to cross paths with Jesus. The two blind men at Jericho. The lame man at the pool of Bethesda. The demoniac of Gadara. All of these people, and there are many more, who just by chance run into Jesus. Jesus didn't just happen upon them. He came to them. This is what Jesus does. And his meeting is explained. In verse 2, he comes out of the ship. He meets the man. How does it happen? What are the actual events? The man sees Jesus from a distance and comes over to him. It's interesting. The two are on a, a collision course almost. In my mind, I see these two people walking toward each other. And Jesus casts away his uncleanness. Jesus immediately casts out of the man the demons. This is what Jesus does. He heals our broken spirits. Salvation is ultimately a war against sin and its effects. This is what God's doing. God is actually, in his love, mercy, and grace, looking down at broken humanity and saying, I have a solution, and the solution is Jesus. And this is why it is so imperative that we realize that man's problem is sin and not any of those other things. Because when we think the other things are the problem, we tend to think if we can fix those things, we can fix man's problems. Government says the answer to man's problem is more government. Now, you might say politically that's not true. I'm not talking politically. Even the conservatives in our government think that they have a solution for man's problems. Man's problem is sin, and they don't have the solution in government. And it's certainly not in education, and it's not in corporations or economies. If we just start giving people money, it won't mean they're less greedy or less proud. It won't mean they gossip less or slander less. It won't mean that they're less immoral. Do you know there are societies on earth where all of the immoral things that we hate about our society is actually illegal. And those countries are very far from God. In fact, they worship a false God. Places like Saudi Arabia and other places in the Middle East. So the answer isn't those things. The answer is man's problem is sin. Let's solve man's problem with Jesus. Jesus comes and he wars against Satan. He actually invades Satan's domain. This is one of the things I really like about some of the Pentecostal, Pentecostal writers of the 20th century. Pentecostalism began early 20th century. It was by mid-20th century, no longer considered a cult. I have a lot of problems with Pentecostalism personally. But one of the things I like is their emphasis on the fact that God has invaded the domain of Satan with Jesus. I like that. I love that. It's true. Jesus landed on earth like, like a military taking the beachhead and landing in enemy territory and said, I'm going to defeat you with the cross. And this is what's happening here. So the, this is letter B under point two. The solution includes warfare against Satan. The man cried with a loud voice, what do I have to do with you? Jesus casts him out and he says, why are you messing with me? I, I adjure you. I, I, I'm saying to you by God, do not torment me. There are so many little ironic things in this text. One of them being the demons actually adjuring Jesus by God. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus said, what is your name? And he says, my name is Legion. 
A legion of Roman soldiers would have about 6,000. There's no indication there are 6,000 demons indwelling in this man, but, but he does say we are many. This man is really demon-possessed. And, and, and they say to Jesus, don't send us out of the country. Verse 11, there's this herd of swine feeding these pigs. The devils actually ask Jesus, saying, can we go into the pigs? And Jesus says, fine, go into the pigs. And the unclean spirit goes out, and they entered into the pigs. And then the pigs, in their wisdom, in their piggish wisdom, run into these ocean and are drowned. Do you see here the demons have no chance against Jesus? This is the blessing. This is the blessing of the solution. Man's problem is sin. You've got the problem of spiritual warfare going on. And here's Jesus. He comes to the scene and demons have absolutely no power against him at all. They have no chance. After Jesus' command, they plead with him. They identify him by name. You are Jesus. You are son of the most high God. They know exactly who he is. And if you want to know why, it was because for a brief moment after their creation or for some time, they knew him in heaven. They knew Jesus. And they say, please do not torment us. And, and I really, the irony here is incredible. Here they are destroying this man. And they're saying to Jesus, please do not destroy us. They're asking for mercy in a, in a time where they were giving none. But that's kind of how Satan works, right? That's how sin operates. That's an evidence of sinfulness. And I do think there's a reason why they're asking for mercy here. Scripture teaches that, that some demons are already chained in a hell, a place called Tartarus. Peter and Jude talk about this. This is my own opinion. I think that the situation that happens in Genesis 6, talking about the sons of, of God uh, intermarrying with the daughters of men, producing this uh, kind of super race that is before the flood, that that is demons uh, actually having uh, some sort of relationship with, with physical human women. Jude indicates that these have already been judged, and they're in a place of judgment confined in this place, Tartarus. It would be similar to what we call hell or the lake of fire. They're already there. And I think it actually makes sense then. when they're, they're, Some people say, well... He's saying, don't go out of this country, that demons are territorial, and that you know they really wanted to stay in Gadara. I don't know what about Gadara would make the demons want to stay there. Maybe they like the weather. Maybe the people were easier to, uh, to possess. I don't know. I don't think uh, that's true. And this is part of Pentecostalism I disagree with. I don't believe in territorial spirits. So we're not all going to get together and pray that the demon of Kerry leaves. Okay, we're, And they have done that. They did that in the 1980s over San Francisco. How did that turn out? You know, I mean, not very well. So I don't believe in territorial spirits. I don't think that's what's happening here. I, I think what they're saying is don't send us to hell. Don't cast us out. And, and they're asking Jesus for mercy. Don't send us away. And in doing that, they see, they see this herd of swine and they say, send us into the pigs. These 2,000 pigs are nearby and they ask to be sent there. And so Jesus pushes them away from the man. Do you see what's happening here? Jesus is defending a man who does not yet believe in him. Now that's love, folks. And that's grace. And the result is the pigs run into the water and they're drowned. And we don't know what happens to the demons. Perhaps at that point they end up in Tartarus. Perhaps they just become disembodied spirits and they're looking for some new host to inhabit. We don't know. But this entire act 
of Jesus appearing here on the shore and of casting out the unclean spirits from this man is in all of it an act of God's grace. The man did not deserve this blessing from Jesus. He, he did not deserve, he did not merit or rate God's love for him. But actually, in Jesus, God is showing that he loves these people. This man's not even Jewish. Most likely, he's a Gentile man. Everything Jesus is doing here is an act of grace. So how does man respond? Do, do you see what's going on here, right? Jesus has now invaded Satan's territory, and he's casting out demons around him, and he's claiming these people for himself. All of that's going on. And how does man respond? And there are disparate or completely different responses to this offer. Some broken people want to keep the status quo. It says in verse 14, they that fed the pigs, right? So these are the pig herders, like a sheep herder. These are pig herders. And pigs stink, so this is kind of a rotten job, but it's their job, right? Although I think sheep stink too, so. So they go to the city and in the country. And why are they there? Because they just watched their entire herd, of which they probably are not the owners. They're just the managers, right? They're, they're, they're taking care of the pig herd for somebody else. They've just watched the entire, their entire stock, uh, their entire product, as a business-wise, run into the, to the sea where Jesus just got out of, and they're all drowned. And they've lost their entire herd. So they don't want people to think it's them. So they go to the city, and they go to the country, and, they and then those people, it says, they went out to see what was done. And they came to Jesus, verse 15, and they saw him. So here they're walking up to Jesus, and one of the first things they see is a guy sitting there. And can you imagine? They're just kind of like rubbing their eyes going, wait a minute. I know him. He's usually in the tombs, right? Cutting himself and crying out. What in the world? And it says he's clothed, which makes you think maybe when he was yelling out, he was unclothed. He's clothed. And he's still, he's sitting still, and he's in his right mind. The mental illness is gone. He's in his right mind. And they become afraid. They're now fearful. And they, and they that saw it told them. Now they're sitting there. He's the, the pig herders are saying, and, and okay, you're here? Okay, do you see what I'm saying here? Here was this guy, he's normally over there, and he's yelling and screaming, we don't go over there, we don't let the pigs go over there. And if one pig goes over there, sorry for the pig, you know, we're not going over there, he's over there. But this guy comes out of this boat, and he walks over, and they walk up, and next thing you know, this guy's putting clothes on, and getting all cleaned up, and getting baptized, and now he's that Jesus' feet. You see that? You know who this guy is. This isn't right, and we didn't do it. That's what they're saying. Okay, do you have the picture in your head? And as they're talking, the owners of the pigs are, they're becoming afraid. And they don't like it. And they began then, verse 17, to say, you know, it'd be really great if you left. Do you see what's happening here? These people are just as broken as the man in the tombs. See, this is the problem with looking at other people who are really broken by their sin. We tend to think that somehow we're better, right? I mean, 
you know the phrase, holier than thou. People say that. Well, those Christians think they're holier than thou. No, we are sinners saved by grace. And if it were not for the grace of God, we would be right where this man is. So here you have all of these owners of the pigs, and they're looking at their dead pigs. What are we going to do with the dead pigs? They're dead. We've lost our crop. We've lost our our product. They're looking at Jesus. They're looking at this man, and they're thinking, do you know the solution to all of this is? For Jesus to leave. Here's what I'm actually, I'm wondering, though though, uh, uh, Mark doesn't tell us in his story what's actually happening. I'm wondering if they owned other herds and they were a little afraid that Jesus would do something that would cause their other herds to run into the water or other herds to be destroyed. But clearly their value is of pigs over people. These pig owners knew three facts. The the formerly demon-possessed man was transformed, their pigs were dead, and Jesus did it. And verse 15 said these facts led them to fear, not to faith, to fear, and it was a fear that caused them to say, we want nothing more to do with you. And they pushed him away. And let me just stop and say for a moment, friends, listen to me. It is really important that you that you just grasp this truth. When you take the gospel into the community, there will be people who will see the work of God in you and, and through you to others, and they'll want no part of it. They'll see the work of God, the transforming work of God, and they want no part of it. And you see it in other places. You, you see it in the man who was born blind, and Jesus heals the man. And the Pharisees are going, how could this be? And they want to kick this man born blind who can now see out of the synagogue. They're not going to let him worship God anymore in the synagogue because he's somehow been saved by Jesus. You see it when the man had a a lame hand. He couldn't use his hand. And Jesus healed his hand. And they said, said, this is wrong. It was the Sabbath day. Come on a different day to be healed. They want nothing to do with Jesus. You see, this is why I say the Pharisees were at the cross and they were rejoicing because what they saw as the solution to their problem was in their minds being eliminated. Jesus is being put to death. This is exactly what we want. These broken people are so deluded by Satan that they actually want more brokenness and not the solution. Ultimately, because they value possessions over Jesus. Because the problem with most people is they have a worldliness about them. I don't mean a worldliness in the way we sometimes use worldliness, the, the domain of Satan or, 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 or the evil in the world. I just mean stuff. People are so attached to the earth, to the ground, to their house, to their car, to their clothes, to their things. They're so attached to their money. It's such an attachment that they can't let it go. And that's how some people respond. But that's not how everybody responds. Because you see here, another response. This is letter B under point three. Others change to a life of obedience to Jesus. And when he was come into the ship, he that it possessed with the, with the devil, this 
demoniac of Gadara. You can see him there. Jesus is now standing off land. He's standing in the ship nearby. Here's this man. His bags are packed. You know, he's just kind of standing there, making sure it fits into the little carry-on. You know, he's got his bags. One of them wheels. He's and he's and he's there. Got his personal item. And he's standing there, going, "Can I come with you? I'd really like to get on the boat." Maybe all the disciples are there with Jesus. This guy's standing there, ready to get on the boat. I'm coming with you. He pleads with Jesus to become one of his active disciples. What I mean by active is this. Jesus had lots and lots of disciples, not the 12. The 12 were the little core of disciples, but he had literally hundreds of disciples. I mean, Mary and Martha didn't follow Jesus around, and they were his disciples. Lazarus was someone Jesus loved dearly. He was a disciple of Jesus. He didn't follow him around. Joseph of Arimathea was a secret disciple. Nicodemus was a secret disciple. There were disciples everywhere, Gentiles and Jews alike. They were everywhere throughout this time period. They formed the basis of what would later be called come the nucleus of the early church. But there were disciples all over. And this, But this guy, they were kind of passive disciples in the sense that they stayed in their homes. They, they, were, they were followers of Jesus, but they didn't travel with them. This guy wants to travel with Jesus. He wants to be an active disciple. Remember, Jesus would say, you'll come and follow me. He was calling some active disciples to himself, but not every disciple was to be like that. Some were, remained where they were. And so Jesus says to him, no, you're not going to come with me. You have a different job. I have a different task for you. And at this point, he gives them a command that is very similar to the command that God gave to his disciples slash apostles later in Matthew 28, 19. Do you see that? He says to him, go. Now that word is actually used in Matthew 28, 19 as you're going, but it's, it's kind of a command as you're going, you be going, tell. You see it? Go in verse 19. Go and tell. That is, he says, you've got all these friends back in Decapolis who, when they think of you, all they think about is this guy's messed up. He's been twisted. He's got problems. He's got mental problems. He probably belongs in jail. He, he, he self-harms. This guy's got a lot of issues. But now he'd been so radically changed. Jesus says, I have a job for you. Go back to your home in Decapolis. Decapolis was a region of cities, a number of different cities, not just Gadara, but others. He said, go back to your home in, the, in Decapolis and you go and you tell everybody you meet, all of your friends, what Jesus has done for you. What has the Lord done for you? He says, what he's saying is this. I want you to go and tell all of your friends all about God's mercy and love and grace. Go tell them. Tell them how all the good things and how he had compassion for you. And what did the man do? It says in verse 20, he departed. Immediately he, do, he obeyed. And he began to publish in Decapolis all the great things that Jesus had done for him. And men marveled. It's really incredible. So he he hears Jesus' command. You can't come with me. And I imagine in his heart, he just sank, right? I mean, I want to go with Jesus. I got all my bags packed, you know. I got my boarding pass. I'm ready to go. No, I have another job for you. I want you to go back home, and I want you to tell everybody you know all the good things that God has done for you, how he's changed your life. 
Let me tell you something, friends. This is kind of where we land in this story. It starts off, Jesus and his disciples, they were crossing over the lake. They had this violent storm. Jesus calmed the storm. The disciples are reeling from that. You know, they're kind of afraid and amazed at all that at the same time. And who is this? And they, I mean, and, and without the time to catch their breath, they get out of this boat. And the next thing that happens, Jesus is talking one-on-one -on -one with this guy and they can just hear what he's saying. And then they see this guy and he's so violent looking and he's maniacal and he's just, it's just crazy. And, and, and he's, he's got wounds from where he's hurt himself. And the next thing you know, this guy is on his knees before Jesus and he's praying and they're dragging him down to the water to baptize him. And all these pigs are dead. And then they come out the owners. All of this is going on. And the next thing you know, the guy's clothed and his hair's combed and he's shaved and he's just looking great. And he was, I want to get on the boat with you. And Jesus says, no, you go and tell everybody what I've done for you. And the man leaves there with his stuff and he, and he goes. And Mark includes what happens then. And we don't know how Mark knew that. I mean, the disciples don't go follow him into the capitals. The only thing we, we can think is, is that the people he told later told stories about their friend, the crazy guy who came and told everybody of what Jesus had done for them. That's where we're at. Listen, ladies and gentlemen, here it is. What has God done for you? And who will you tell? That, that's what this story is all about. Mark is kind of setting the stage for what's going to come at the end. He's setting the stage for us with this idea. Here is something God has done for you. Now go out into the world and tell people. Maybe it's not as a formal missionary, right? But go and just share your testimony. This is what? He has done for me. This past week, the daughter of Elvis Presley died. Did you read that? Lisa Marie Presley. It, it struck me because she's only a year older than I am. She's 54. I was going, whoa, you know, that's pretty young. And here she is. She's, uh, she's now passed away. It, Becky and I were talking about uh, some of this together this week. And uh, we were talking about Humpty Dumpty. And she sent me this little note. She had read in a BBC article an interview that a reporter had with Lisa Marie Presley some time ago. She referred to her Scientology, her faith. And she said, it's not so much a God thing, it's non-denominational. It offers answers to questions I had about life in the most basic way. Listen to this. It's like Humpty Dumpty. When I fell off the wall, they helped put me back together and I just grieved for her because she's still broken. But there's a man that this demoniac met one day, not by chance, entirely by God's ordained plan, who really did put him back together. And if you know him as your savior, he's put you back together too. So you, all the Humpty Dumpties of our church, go tell all the other Humpty Dumpties that live in this world about the one who put you back together. Let's pray. Lord. Help us to obey you in this matter, to take it seriously, to share our faith with others. Before I finish praying, I don't want you to raise your hand today. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to think of one person who you can give your testimony to in the next week or so, maybe two weeks. Maybe it'll be by email or text. Maybe it'll be by a phone call. Maybe it'll be a personal conversation. 
So this is going to be a family member, a friend, a, a, a neighbor, somebody who you, if you, and maybe you should pray this way, Lord, if you give me the opportunity, I will do it. And if you have the opportunity by email or text, and you know this person needs Christ, just say, I'll go and tell. And, and it doesn't have to be all about, hey, you need to accept this. You can just say, let me tell you what Jesus did for me, how he put me back together. It'll take you a little bit of time, but that's what I want you to commit yourself to doing in obedience to this passage. Help me, Lord, to share my testimony with somebody else. Father, please help us to do that, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand to our feet as the pianist plays. You commit to the Lord to do that this week.